Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. Hey, everyone. Uh, today's episode is an interview with author Bill Lasher. Uh, Lasher, he has a book coming out later this month called Eve of a Hundred Midnights, and it's all about a pair of American war correspondents who cover the East Asian theater of World War II, the Chinese-Japanese uh, side of that conflict. And uh, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, it is Thursday, June 2nd, then an important anniversary is coming up for Lasher's subjects. Lasher writes about a pair of correspondents who work for different publications, who meet, who fall in love, who have daring escapes, and who see all kinds of really like fascinating and weird and grisly parts of that section of the war. And on June 5th, 1941, one of his subjects, Melville Jacoby, saw one of the most uh, vivid and brutal parts of the East Asian part of World War II, the bombing of Chongqing. Uh, Chongqing, or Chongqing as it's now known, was the wartime capital of China for much of World War II. And on June 5th, 1941, uh, the Japanese bombed it and killed over 4,000 people. Um, in his book, Lasher, let me read a short section of it, uh, he mentions that Chiang Kai-shek himself was moved to tears by all of the violence that happened in this bombing. And Melville Jacoby, one of Lasher's subjects, was there to document it and photographed the aftermath of the bombing. Uh, his photographs were eventually published in Life magazine, and they were some of the only photographs of the East Asian theater uh, taken by an American and published uh, for the American viewing public. Uh, the photographs were apparently uh, so brutal and so disturbing that Lasher writes that uh, people wrote into Life magazine to complain because they thought they were fakes. Uh, they thought that they were hoaxes or propaganda or something like that. They had no idea that war could actually be uh, that violent and could do that kind of thing to a population. So that's the sort of thing that Lasher's subjects uh, saw and experienced on a regular basis. Um, and he gets into how they became war correspondents, what it was like for them every day, and also what it means to cover war and conflicts then and now. So enjoy. Hi, Joe. How's it going? It's going great. So your book, it's about uh, journalists in World War II. Yeah. It's uh, specifically about two journalists who were uh, young Americans who went to China and the Philippines to cover the conflict, motivated by uh, somewhat similar but somewhat different reasons. And um, I'd say this, it's the story of that conflict uh, as it pertained to uh, Asia and the people who were driven to tell that story back in the 1940s and bring that story back to the West because it was an undercover conflict, but also about what motivates someone to go to a foreign land and to go to a dangerous place and tell such stories. I think that's just as uh, important a piece. And finally, it's, it's a love story. It's a love story about how those two journalists that are at the heart of this book uh, came to fall in love and came to have a tremendous adventure as a result of that romance. So who are your two key players in the book? The two players are Melville Jacoby and uh, a woman named Annalie, at the time, Annalie Whitmore. Uh, 
in the course of the book, she would marry Mel and uh, become Emily Jacoby. Later in her life, uh, she married another man named Clifton Fadiman. Uh, and so some people might know her as Annalie uh, Fadiman. But uh, the one is a Mel, happened to be my grandmother's cousin. And so I found out about this story when I was in my early 20s, just starting a career as a journalist. And my grandmother was moving out of a house to a house she was sharing with her second husband and found an old typewriter and gave it to me as a gift to sort of mark my beginning of a career as a journalist and said to me, hey, this is a a typewriter that I think you should have. It used to belong to my cousin, the war correspondent. And I thought to myself, your cousin, the worst correspondent, I've never heard this story. And her telling of that story then was sort of what set me off on the path to learn everything I could about this man, Melville Jacoby. So for the past, you know, almost 10 years, I've been sort of unfurling bits of this man's life. And through that uh, exploration, I've learned that there's this huge story that is somewhat untapped of... uh, what happened in, in uh, Asia before what we know of as World War II uh, began, uh, why it happened, and how it related to the West and the rest of World War II. Um, and then the story of how foreign correspondents worked back then and uh, how they work today and what parallels exist there and where things are different. So that's Mel. Mm-hmm. And Anna Lee was a fascinating woman in her own right. Uh, she was born in Utah and lived with her parents, uh, I guess you'd say middle-class family who ended up getting hit pretty hard by the depression and moved out West and sort of rebuilt their lives, but still kind of struggled to make ends meet, uh, you know, as, as they got out of the depression and Annalie became, was just an excellent writer and student and, uh, she had been a managing editor of the Stanford student newspaper and the first woman to hold that role in 18 years, uh, and really the second woman ever to hold that role. She was a screenwriter at MGM and then eventually a journalist of some repute in the 1940s. Cool. So who did they work for and how did they wind up um, covering the Asian front of World War II? So Mel, after being an exchange student in China, went back to China after graduating from, from his university and uh, first as a freelancer. So he had some introductions at the United Press, uh, but he really just had a bunch of letters of introduction, uh, went to Shanghai first, uh, tried to meet as many people as he could. So first he was writing for uh, United Press and then uh, a variety of other outlets for more or less the entirety of 1940. Got more work at the United Press at the end of that year uh, in... Um, what was then considered French Indochina. It's now Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And then um, ended up coming back to the United States briefly and went back to China one more time in 1941 as with an assignment to work for Newsweek and then a photo magazine called Click. But he arrived in uh, China by way of the Pan Am Clipper, which was this glorious flying boat that would fly across both the Atlantic and the Pacific. And um, on that flight, he met Henry Luce, who was the founder and publisher of Time Magazine. And so he ended up getting poached by Henry Luce to write for Time Magazine. Hmm. And so when he went back that summer, he started working for Time. Anna Lee 
was um, she was an, a screenwriter for MGM. And in that brief period that Mel had been back in the United States, he looked her up because he'd heard that she was trying to find a way to get to China. At the time, it was really difficult to go to China and uh, uh, without having a job there for anybody, particularly mm-hmm. for women. Uh, there were The State Department would have to give permission for Americans to travel there because it was a war zone. Uh, and that she was having some difficulty with that. Mel helped make some introductions to some contacts that she knew. And in meeting her and, and getting to know her better than he'd known her just briefly in college, uh, the two of them really hit, had a rapport and hit things off. And through this rapport, Annalee found uh, an organization called United China Relief, which was a war relief organization that needed mm-hmm. a, a publicist. So she went to China as a publicist for URC. Um, when she arrived, uh, she ended up, working for them mostly as a speechwriter for um, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, Mei Ling Sung, uh, who was the wife of the Chinese premier. Um, And she ended up in that job until shortly before Pearl Harbor when Mel uh, had been transferred uh, to Manila with uh, with Time knowing that war was on the horizon. So he was working for Time uh, in Manila, where it seemed like the war might have been ready to begin. And uh, Annalie ended up there, leaving her job at uh, United China Relief. And she worked first as a freelancer for a publication called Liberty Magazine, which was sort of a competitor to uh, the Saturday Evening Post. And mm-hmm. uh, So once the war began, Mel was filing reports, mostly for Time, sometimes for Life Magazine, and Annalie was filing reports for Liberty. And she wrote some incredibly evocative and descriptive uh, stories about the first attacks on Manila, about what was going on on Corregidor, the island fortress that all the Americans retreated toward while Mel was reporting for Time. And ultimately, he was also taking pictures because Time's photographer was a man named Carl Maidens, who had decided to stay behind in Manila when it looked like the city was going to be captured while Mel and Anley decided to leave. And he ended up being captured and imprisoned by the Japanese. So Mel ended up being the sort of the Time and Life Organization's chief photographer. Later in her life, Annalie ended up working for Time in China. Uh, this is sort of outside the realm of where my book goes, but mm-hmm. she ended up being uh, uh, sort of one of the key critics of Chiang Kai-shek's re- regime and lo- alongside a good friend of theirs, Theodore White, who later ended up being a mm-hmm. really important presidential biographer. But um, she would get pushed out of uh, of Time Magazine for her critiques uh, for the book that she and uh, and Teddy White wrote together and for some of her other work. But that's sort of beyond the pale of what I, what I address in my book. Okay. Um, I want to go back a little bit yeah. because you mentioned uh, Melvin Jacoby. Um, he is in China in, what, the 1920s, 1930s? Yeah, 1936. 1936. So at the time, is there still a Chinese civil war going on? Uh, there's no war. No, there's not, no war. There's some, you know, semblance of some, some, you know, hurt feelings from the, uh, some of the raids on communists in the 19th, early, earlier in the 1930s that had been orchestrated by people like, uh, Dai Li and, and other people on Chiang Kai-shek's command. But in 1936, uh, that's when the uh, the Xi'an crisis occurs, and that's when mm-hmm. 
a sort of renegade marshal uh, who's called the young marshal. Uh, I'm not going to remember his actual name at the top of my head right now, but he kidnaps Chiang Kai-shek and sort of forces him to address the communists. And, and there's this intensely negotiated event in um, December of 1936 where uh, Chiang's um, Republican government agrees to sort of form a unified front with the with the communists against Japan because Japan's mm-hmm. making motions in Manchuria, which they'd occupied since 1931. And so, so, so he's there. And this is all happening while Mel and a collection of other students are there as exchange students in, in Guangzhou. Um, and so there's this sort of the country sort of captivated by what's going to happen. And no one mm-hmm. knows if Chiang Kai-shek's dead or alive. And Mel's writing home about this. And then at the end of that year, at the end of his school year, I should say, in July of 1937, uh, is when Japan and China go to war and go and declare a war against one another. So the communists and the nationalists are not at war with one another. They're mm. unified against Japan at this point. They have, you know, still a lot of tension and a lot of hostility that will sort of erode as the war progresses. But the sort of primary focus is on Japan and, mm. and responding to that attack and responding to Japan's invasion of China. Um, and that's something that Mel witnesses and really motivates him to want to be a reporter because when he returns to the United States, he starts reading newspaper reports of what happened, even newspaper reports that quote him because he was on a boat that arrived of American citizens. <laughs> and they're just outrageous reports that just totally create this sort of monstrous situation. You know, they're just like any other newspaper reports that just sort of overly dramatize the sort of foreign lands and the horrors of war and uh they um the, his he ends up wanting to sort of set the record straight on that okay yeah and so how does he go about doing that uh well the first thing he does is he critiques these uh three newspapers in san francisco in a master's thesis that he writes with a fellow stanford student uh and essentially it just does what anyone would do in sort of any academic study. He takes thousands of stories and codes them and looks for common themes in these stories and, and then interviews people who are reporters on the ground in China, people who are editors here in, uh, uh, in the U.S., people who are editors of wire services in the U.S., and uh, various experts and scholars and compares you know this is a very academic approach mm-hmm. but it's enough that sort of generates his sort of passion to just return to china as soon as he can so he can do his own reporting and try to do it a little better than anyone's doing there uh, he you know looks at things like how much this the 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 reporters are or the editors are focusing on this sort of what he calls the horror angle and you know um uh, what kinds of stories are ending up in American papers about uh, about China and about Japan? He's also he's comparing coverage of Japan, coverage of China, and then um, looking at things like how both of those countries' relationships with the United States are changing. He's looking at changing economics in the form of like trade agreements with those countries and how those other things are changing. How the various exclusion acts are affecting the relationships with these countries, and does some bit of comparison also to how U.S. media is at the same time covering the war in Europe so that, you know, he can sort of create this thesis that despite sort of a growing importance of Asia to the United States, the American media is 
putting all its effort on what's going on in Germany and France at the time. You know, this is the rise of Hitler and the the rise of um, uh, the Nazis and the rise of fascism. And it's certainly concerning, and he doesn't try to deny that concern. But uh, he's starting to see that though these papers are spending all this time on Europe, they're sort of ignoring Asia until things flare up and until Mm -hmm. things explode, rather than talking about it on a regular basis. And, you know, it's interesting to me because that's the same kind of reporting that we see today. Like that's the, um, you know, when, when we see stories about, say, the Middle East, we only see stories about when there's a revolution there or stories about Syria or stories about Libya, you know, when the Arab Spring happened. But before the Arab Spring, we weren't seeing anything, you know, or, of course, stories about terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, so he actually ends up f- finishing this paper and presenting it right before, um, you know, the day before Germany in- invades Poland. So it sort of sets the scene, even though he's not interested in what's going on in Europe, it does set the scene for what's going on. And, um, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question, but okay, yeah, I've kind of babbling on. But. No, it's okay. Okay. So he and Emily are getting to China. And what type of assignments do they have from their respective outlets? Well, I mean, they're, first of all, they're there separately. Uh, okay. Mel gets there in May of uh, 1941. Uh, his assignments are essentially to cover sort of what he does is he just says everything that's happening within... Uh, he's in a town called Chongqing, uh, which is at the time known in the West as Chongqing. Mm-hmm. And um, he's covering everything... Uh, the important thing to know about Chongqing is that it's, at the time, it's the wartime government of China. It's mm-hmm. a wartime capital. Uh, the Japanese have occupied Beijing. They've occupied Nanjing, which was the, the capital at the time. Uh, they op- occupied Shanghai, you know, every coastal city. So the government has retreated to Chongqing, and they've, they've you know, got all the operations government. So one of the things he's doing is just circulating around, getting all the gossip on what's going on in Chongqing. He's reporting on bombings that happen daily. You know, the Japanese are just having, you know, almost daily air raids on the city. Anytime the weather's clear, the city's just getting carpet bombed. And so he's reporting on that. He's reporting on decisions made about where the war front's going to go next. You know, it's sort of like being a beat reporter in any other capital, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. going and, just doing the rounds among all the officials to see what's what's on you know what's really happening versus what's happening in press conferences you know he does a couple stories where he goes in the field and he rides out to uh where some of the front lines of the fighting are happening in places like Lanchao and uh um Xi'an and, and some other places that he uh goes out to with other reporters you know to say okay this is how the war is actually being fought these are the conditions that they're facing these are what some of the supply routes look like so he provides these huge dispatches that are you know hundreds of words long almost daily to his editors at time by via via telegram usually but sometimes by airmail and they then pick and choose from these so what stories are interesting to them? You know, the editors back in New York say, okay, these are important stories because of this and this and this. Teddy White at this point has worked there. And so so he's writing those kinds of stories. Now, of course, if there's a development, like uh, there were American military advisors arrived in China, he would write about that development because it's of interest now to the Americans that, you know, American forces are arriving there. And this is, again, before Pearl Harbor, yet American pilots are starting to arrive to work for groups like the Flying Tigers, which were this mercenary fighting squad of pilots, you know, that 
would shortly fight against the Japanese and, and of course, protect supply lines. But um, So his stories are, are that kind of thing. Also stories are, what's it like, you know, what's a day in the life of Chungkin like? Mm-hmm. What's a... a who are these characters that are leading this new China? You know, what are, what's the story behind some of these Western advisors that are advising Chiang Kai-shek? There was this really massive, horrifying air raid in June of 1941, on June 5th of 1941, where thousands of people died when an air raid shelter collapsed. And it was an air raid shelter that had been really poorly constructed. Uh, people suffocated and stampeded trying to get out of there only to run into bombs. So there was this just mass chaos. He reported on that and in this horrifyingly vivid language, just Mm -hmm. um, describing what that was like. And then to some degree, what had gone wrong there, Mm -hmm. Um, who had, uh, you know, describing things like uh, how these were poorly constructed shelters, who, you know, um, how people had cut corners, how people were getting fired for the poor construction, how people weren't getting fired because soon the Chinese attention went to whatever the next story was. Uh, And then when Anna Lee got there, um, I mean, she wasn't covering as much of the hard news because she was working as a speechwriter for the government, so, Mm -hmm. or for the relief effort, but it was very closely tied. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they were covering things like there was this effort to find a couple pandas to... Uh, send back to the United States as sort of a gift. So they're covering those stories, how those pandas were trapped and found and sent back. Uh, and it was a, it was a pretty, it was much, it was quite a headache for for everybody involved. Mel actually had to organize the search party for these pandas, and uh, finding the people to go find the pandas, and then they found the pandas, and then transporting the pandas back to the U.S. and they wanted to have a publicity tour for them. When the two of them were transferred to the Philippines, or when Mel was transferred to the Philippines and she came along, they came together on board an airplane and they got married as soon as she arrived in Manila. They then went to have their honeymoon in the countryside outside of Manila and had to bring the pandas along because the vet that was going to take them back to the United States hadn't arrived in the Philippines yet. So they had to find the right food for the pandas. They had to make sure the pandas were sheltered and cared for and fend off requests from people to sell them various like products to care for the pandas or air conditioners or anything they might need. Um, so they covered those kinds of colorful features too. Mm-hmm. After Pearl Harbor, um, it became, you know, what's how how is Manila responding to the attacks? How are the Philippines responding to the attacks? Uh, both from a military standpoint and a political standpoint, uh, because at the time the Philippines are a commonwealth of the United States and not fully mm-hmm. independent, uh, but also uh, how the people are responding. This is a population that hasn't seen the five years of war that Chungking had seen, you know, to that point. And uh, they're being attacked and they're being bombed and they're having to learn how to do air raid drills and having to deal with blackouts and things like that. Um, there's a lot of going to the battlefront to meet various, you know, contingents of troops that are fighting and see what they're doing and see what, what it looks like there. There's a lot of talking about the sort of behind the scenes medical efforts and, and sort of impromptu hospitals that are being set up in the jungles and, and really describing the color of that. That's actually something that Annalie uh, writes a couple of great stories about, 
um, uh, Mel as well and take some really remarkable photos of. Um, I mean, in some ways it's no different than reporting today. It's, you know, the writing breaking stories, you know, there's mm-hmm. a big battle or something has, someone has surrendered here or, you know, something has happened and then they're writing the sort of color that fills it in, that helps contextualize this war that, that helps you, helps the Americans see, okay, here's what this sort of, you know, quote unquote exotic land is actually like. And here are the people fighting there and here are the people living there and why we're, you know, you know, and how they feel about this, this conflict and how Mm -hmm. they, how they feel about their daily lives. So you've, um, compared it to being like, just like covering things today. Uh Um, but you're a journalist and you're familiar with like how journalism is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I believe you. I don't think you've ever been a war correspondent. No, I have not. Okay. Neither have I. Um, I write for an alt weekly, uh, but do you think there are any important contrasts between how war was covered back then uh, versus how a war correspondent would be working today? I think the, the, the most obvious contrast was how close, particularly in, in, in the, once the U.S. is involved in the war, is sort of how tight uh, Mel becomes with some of the officers that he's reporting with mm-hmm. and... Uh, you know, and the fact that he's armed when he eventually, he and Emily eventually escape from uh, Corregidor, this this fortress island that the Japanese have ever surrounded, mm-hmm. uh, and they go on this tiny ship through the Philippines and, and have to sneak past enemy lines and sail from island to island together. And when they leave, they're given Mel and another reporter that's with them are given pistols, grenades, and ammunition, which most reporters would not be given today. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I think, again, I'm not a war correspondent, so I don't know for sure, you know, how tight some of these people get or when people need to be armed, maybe just for their own protection. Um, it seems to me it's, it was a lot more informal then. Uh, but then again, uh, a war correspondent, a former war correspondent that's a friend of mine, uh, Jackie Spinner, who'd been in Afghanistan and been in Afghan and, and had been in Iraq, uh, she's read the book and says that it really evoked a lot of the feelings she had covering those places and the motivations of why people go to these places and cover war. So, you know, I'd like to think that that experience is a somewhat universal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I think another contrast is uh, the patriotism in the reporting is a little bit more bald and and obvious you know there's there's certainly a lot more uh, problematic language in the reporting that i've seen from back then you know there's a mm-hmm. lot of ethnic slurs about the japanese in the in the writing there's a lot of sort of assumptions made not so much for mel but but some of the writing that occurs at the time there's a lot of assumptions made and and surprise one one story that i'll remember is is that you know mel once reported on an attack in the um in the Philippines and there was a story about how everyone thought that the attack must have been by Germans and not by Japanese because it was so accurate and so uh, skilled and because there was this disbelief that the Japanese had the same training and skill and ability to to sort of wage an effective war. Wait, 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 wait. You're saying that people didn't believe back then that the Japanese could be precise. 
More or less. That is a complete inversion of current, present-day uh, ethnic and racial and nationalistic stereotypes. Yeah, it, it really is. <laughs> it really is. I mean, there's there there's there's still this sense of of um, a lot of this disbelief is a sense of like backwardness on the part of Japan and uh, mm. um, also there were some other racial overtones in some of the some of the reasoning for that. Um, there's also a lot of you know discussion of you know the stature of uh, Japanese soldiers and, and their size and things as compared to American soldiers and um, and and I think that that's I mean while there's probably still a lot of racism and a lot of stereotyping in contemporary reporting it's definitely not as overt as I think it was back then mm-hmm. um, I mean the, the one of course very clear and unavoidable contrast is is technological i mean things are happening so much more slowly than when mel and annalee are on the run there's no other source of information about where they are and how they're there i mean they get to one island that happens to have a radio station that a shortwave radio station that they can radio back to the united states that they're alive and that's about it and mm-hmm. a short 500 word dispatch of what they've seen but you know, they can't give daily updates on the fighting. They can only mm. give updates when things happen, you know. And the photographs that come back, you know, Mel provides some of the only photographs that ever were published of uh, the fighting on Bataan, which is a peninsula in the Philippines, and Corregidor. Uh, and it takes, you know, months for those to be published because he has to actually take the film back from the Philippines on this escape route with him that ultimately takes him and Annalena to Australia. And then those, that film has to be developed in Australia and sent to, you know, outlets in, in New York. So we're talking, you know, a battle that occurs in January and February of 1941 that American, you know, magazine readers don't see pictures of until April of 1941. Hmm. And that's on, I mean, that's unimaginable today. Right. So that's different, but I mean, of course it's technology. So World War II is one of the most um, overcovered things ever um, in, you know, popular history press. Right. Um, kind of when I started this podcast, I had an unofficial rule for myself that so I would never talk about uh, ancient Rome or World War II, but whatever. So, but we're talking about the Eastern Front, not the Eastern Front. We're talking about, like, the, be- the front between Japan and China. Right. I know this is a silly way of putting this, but why should Americans care about that aspect of the conflict? Well, because... For one thing, um, you know, I, I don't know the numbers, but I, you know, thousands of Americans died there. Mm-hmm. And and it, there was an opportunity. There were many opportunities for the U.S. to get involved earlier than it did. And people were saying, we should get involved. We shouldn't get involved. This isn't our conflict. Um, I think that Americans should care because... It's an important, you know, what happened between China and Japan is, I mean, it is what led to what happened between Japan and the United States, but we do this all the time. We say, you know, oh, that conflict has nothing to do with us when it's, you know, anytime you're sort of claiming to be a global superpower, there is no distant part of the world, you know. A conflict that occur saying, oh, that's not important to us. You know, isolationism, I should say, is is always sort of a dangerous path. And I think this, 
this conflict provided a lesson in in how isolationism sort of hobbled the United States, you know, at a time when it could have, it didn't have to be hobbled. Um, I don't know if I want to say that I'm advocating for war whenever we think we should intervene, you know, but I do think that we should pay attention to places that we consider foreign or exotic or whatever word you want to use, because usually there's an impact to us, whether it's an economic impact or it's a moral impact or it's, um, you know, an actual existential impact. And I think that, you know, there were a lot of people, Mel was one of them, but there were a lot of reporters at the time saying, you know, we're paying this much attention to what's happening between Germany and France and England and the rest of that continent. Rightly so, considering what happened to, you know, millions of Jews in, in that, on, on Europe and the European continent, not to mention other people who were killed there. But we're paying so much attention to what's happening there, yet we have a limited interest there. We're not paying anywhere near as much attention to what's happening in China and in Japan and in what was then called Indochina and in the Pacific, where at the time we had economic interests and, you know, rightly or wrongly, we had stakes there. Um, and I think that we we can keep doing this. You know, we can keep not paying attention to things that um, that matter to us until it's quote unquote too late, you know, till we have to. And I think that does a disservice, you know. Um, and it's not, again, it's not about fighting these wars necessarily, but it, in my mind, it's about like, okay, how do we develop our response maybe before we have to fight a war? Well, I mean, I mean, that's what I've learned is that, you know, it's really, really easy to ignore that which we consider foreign. And it's really easy to say this doesn't affect us. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's any lesson that's come to me from this book is that almost everything affects, um, you know, almost, I mean, even, even, even not the U.S., almost any conflict in the world is going to affect the shape of the world because it's going to affect where everyone's devoting their resources and their attention and their, you know, their energy. And I think that, you know, right now we're seeing, for one thing, we're seeing reporting and particularly in-depth analytical reporting get decimated. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the people who understand, you know, in great depth what is going on in a particular story. Uh, what, you know, when, when news breaks, the people who understand the background of the story that's breaking are the people that can actually help Americans or whoever, news readers, doesn't have to be Americans. I'm so, you know, Americentric tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's those people who understand these situations that can really digest it and help, uh, help those people, those audiences make decisions that matter you know, uh, if, if people making decisions don't have adequate information to make those decisions, we're screwed. And I think, I think this story is a reminder that there were journalists providing this information for a long time. And a lot of that information was ignored. You know, there was a lot of information ignored, for example, about the, uh, the lack of preparation that, uh, one of the things I haven't touched on, one of the stories that was being written a lot was 
the lack of preparation that American troops had for uh, fighting back against Japan in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. They they weren't armed. They didn't have adequate ammunition. They didn't have adequate food for the threat that was seen. And there were reporters writing those stories. Um, And, I mean, the 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 forces that were decimated and start and had there been convoys sent to that area the course of that war may have been vastly different so i mean i guess the lesson i want people to walk away from in this book is that there are um that that reporting matters it used it mattered back then it matters today it'll probably matter in the future and what form that reporting takes and the investment we place in that reporting Mm -hmm. will affect people's lives when's the book come out Book comes out on June twenty first, and you're going to be doing some live events. Yeah, I'll be uh, uh, right now. I have events scheduled at Powell's in uh, Cedar Hills, uh, the Powell's at Cedar Hills Crossing in Beaverton mm-hmm. on June twenty third at seven p.m. I also have uh, a reading at Elliott Bay Books in Seattle on June twenty sixth at three p.m., which is a Sunday. And a uh, reading at Vroman's Bookstore in Pasadena, California, just outside of L.A. Uh, on July 5th at uh, 7 p.m. And a variety of other locations to come. And all that will be on uh, lasheratlarge.com or oh. eveof100midnights.com. Excellent. Bill, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Joe. And thank you folks very much for listening. As always, to support the show on Patreon, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. That would be great. Also, go to iTunes and throw ratings and reviews at the show. Uh, Stars and words and that kind of thing. Uh, They do some magic within iTunes' algorithm and make the show more discoverable for other people. Um, Also, I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert and joestrecker.tumblr.com, all that sort of thing. Again, thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.